How's everyone doing? Good. Turn to First Thessalonians. Uh, man, I messed that one up. First Thessalonians. I, I need to pause before I say it. You try to say that too quickly with a dry mouth, it's not going to go well. <clears throat> yeah, I need to like warm up with some Sally sells she seashells by the seashore, whatever it is. Exactly. All right, let's uh, let's pray before we begin. Father, we come before you now, and we want to thank you, God, that uh, you are the eternal God, that you existed uh, before time began, that you don't have a beginning, that you don't have an end. Uh, God, that can be hard for us to to wrap our mind around, um, but we acknowledge it. We see it in Scripture. We believe it. It shows that uh, you truly are in a category all by yourself. You are God, and we, we are not. We acknowledge your greatness, your power, your beauty, your glory, Lord. Lord, we want to uh, intercede for our president and his wife and his family, God. We pray for a speedy recovery for him from COVID. Um, God, I pray even more importantly for his soul. You know the condition of it, um, and only you know it truly. And so we pray, God, that uh, wherever he's at with you, that you would shine your, your truth and your light into his heart, that he would govern in righteousness and holiness according to your word, Lord. You'd even use this uh, sickness that he has um, to bring about truth in his life, God. We pray that you would use it for your glory. You'd use him for your purposes and your glory, God. We pray for our nation uh, as we prepare for an election that you would be merciful uh, to this nation, God, that you would be gracious. Um, Lord, we pray, God, against uh, civil uh, unrest. Lord, bring this nation together, not because a certain person gets elected or a certain one doesn't or there's certain justices elected or certain ones not, but bring us together um, through the gospel, that there'd be unity. That's, that's really the only way we'll have true uh, unity and true peace is through peace with you through Jesus. So we pray for our country uh, who desperately needs you, uh, just like we do, God. And um, this is the time for us to stand as the church. We have the truth, so let us act like it. Let us speak truth um, into the public discourse, not necessarily um, politics, uh, but, but truth, God. Truth of the, of the goodness of you, truth of your saving grace, truth of your son who came for us, to redeem us, a people for your own, Lord. Go before us, Lord, now we ask in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're in First Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to look at one verse today. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. But the verse we're going to focus on is verse 13. So 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
So the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first two verses, verse 11 and 12, and seen that there's really three prayers here. And we looked at how whenever we see this uh, particular tense or form used in the New Testament, that word may, um, depending on how it's worded, it's indicating that it's a prayer, a prayer of the apostle that we can then take and apply and, and use it in our own lives as, as we pray. So the first prayer is, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. It's a prayer for God to show us which way to go, for God to take us by the hand and lead us, for us to be willing, whatever our path is that God wants us on, we'll we'll go that way. The second one we see in verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Again, the idea is, is not just having love, but increasing in it. If you're a believer, you have love. But to increase in that love, to abound in it, to to have a a supernatural feeling of God's love that flows, not just trickles out of you, but flows abundantly out of you. And then we get to the third prayer. Now, the third prayer is not in the optative, like the first two, but we see something that Paul is driving at from the first two prayers. And it's seen in two words, the very first two words in most versions, in verse 13. So that. So that. So the first two prayers lead us towards this third prayer. He's saying, I'm praying these two things for you about being directed, about abounding in love, so that the third one is also true. What's that third one? That God establishes our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, I want you to see something. There's an aim here with these prayers. Notice the first two prayers. They have a focus on preparing us for Christ's return. That's the so that. Uh, Being in a place so that when he returns... We are ready. Being in a place so that when we stand before him, we are ready. Every single person, every single person, every single person will one day stand before the judgment seat. That's what it says in Corinthians. We're all going to appear before him and have to give an account. And Paul is praying that when that day happens, whether the Thessalonians or, or us are alive, when Christ returns... We're ready for that. When he comes back, the archangel, we're going to get right into it in 1 Thessalonians 4. You should stick with us through that. It's going to be some amazing stuff. We're going to hear the archangel. We're going to hear the trumpet. And what? Christ is coming back. So we need to be prepared. We need to be ready for that. So those first two prayers, there's an aim to the prayers of having a heart fully prepared for Christ's return. Now think about the heart. When when we think about the heart, we normally think of, like, emotions, you know? You know, someone has a boyfriend, someone has a girlfriend, you know, they, they break up, that's sad, you know, and they talk about, oh, I, my, my heart is broken. So we think, we think of emotions, but a lot of times when the New Testament uses the word heart, that's actually not the idea. Um, it's, the idea is the, the, the entirety of our inner man. So in this context... Um, the focus is actually specifically on our moral living. When he talks about hearts, 
He's talking about it in regards to how we are living out our Christianity. Actually, if we keep reading, so verse 13, he's got you know, three prayers here, which kind of leads us into chapter 4. So let's just read it so you can see the link between the heart and moral living. He says, finally then, brothers, so actually he's getting ready to wrap up his letter. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For we know what instructions we gave you through the Lord. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That sanctification, you see that word there in verse 3? Yes? That ties back to that verse 13, the holiness. It's the same, it's the same uh, Greek word there, uh, the root. That you abstain, so the sanctification is what? Abstain from sexual immorality. That's part of the sanctification. So back to the holiness and back to the heart. What's the idea? It has to do with moral living. How are you living for the Lord? The clear focus here is us becoming more like Christ. How? In our living. In our living. He's going to apply it specifically to the Thessalonians in 4, starting with how they're conducting themselves sexually, but more broadly, in moral decisions. What does this mean? Well, he's talking about in decisions where there's right and wrong, in decisions where there's good and bad, but, it, but it's more than that. There's also decisions where there is a good versus a better. Now, I mean, if you're a believer, <clears throat> we, we all stumble and fall, right? And we can even make grievous horrible, sinful decisions. Uh, but if, if you're a believer, the character, characterization of your life is not going to be horrible, sinful, awful decisions, right? True? But what it's going to be is you walking out in Christ-likeness the truths of the gospel. And you're going to have opportunities every day, every week, every month, every year that you have to make decisions for yourself, for your family, at your work, at your church, that there's going to be either something that can be good or something that can be better. Even when you think about something like serving in ministry. I mean, there's a plethora of ministries that you can serve in, and some of those are good for you, and some of those are better for you. Some of those you're more gifted in, and you can excel in, and you can please the Lord and, and have a fruitful ministry. Some of them might not be so, so well. So a lot of times we, we just think about our moral living and we just think of sin versus non-sin. But that's, that's true, absolutely. But there's also an idea of, like, <clears throat> we could go through our lives and just kind of fumble through it and never make any horrible, awful, sinful decisions or acts. That doesn't necessarily mean we're living in holiness. It doesn't necessarily mean we're walking in righteousness. God has, has different things for us to do, and he wants us to know when he brings those into our lives and we have opportunities, what are we going to choose? And, and many times we have opportunities, and, and a lot of times our, our, our flesh will take what, what I call the path of least resistance. This is, this is the easy way. And, and we can even justify in our minds that, that well, that's not, that's not really sinful, but like that's the easy way. I mean, I'll just give you an example in my own life. You know, today we have the Tyler Fest. Um, and the Tylers, as long as they've had it, um, before, before the prayer is said for the meal, you know, they have someone share uh, a short gospel presentation. 
And so, you know, Pastor Vaughn did it for a number of years. I've done it a few times. I'll be doing it today. Please be praying for me. <clears throat> you know, and, and actually this was the first time I went to them because we were getting close, so I just wanted some prep time. And I'm like, hey, are you wanting me to, um, to, to speak at, the, you know, at your festival this year? Friends, that, that takes time and, 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 and energy. And, and, and I'm already working today, right, right now. And you, you all are going to that festival to, to have a good time, and, and so am I too. But there's, I'm going to be burning some mental energy. I'm going to be burning some, some spiritual energy. When, when I say amen to this sermon, you know, I'm, I'm getting my gears going for the next short one, right? And it'd be really easy. It, would it be sinful for me to say, hey, just, why don't you guys ask someone else this year? No. But I feel like God's gifted me and has given me opportunities. I want to take those opportunities. And I think as we do that, that's not the path of least resistance. As we do that, one, I think God honors that. But two, he uses that for us to grow in our sanctification. I believe as I'm stepping out in faith and taking opportunities like that with my giftings, that I'll grow in my holiness. I'll grow in my sanctification. And so the same is true with you all as you guys get opportunities. You all always have decisions, and some of them are, are, are super clear. You know, sin versus non-sin, okay? But some of them aren't as clear. Well, don't, don't just take the path of least resistance. That's easy. That's easy. A lot of times you're going to grow in your faith when you're being challenged. When, when there's pushback. So don't take the path of least resistance. Just, Justice actually read this earlier. I do, I do love it when the Lord works these things out, and he does it way often. I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's start in verse 6, 1 Peter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then look what he says here. This leads up to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, God wants us to be a sanctified people. He wants us to be a holy people. And, and here we see, look, we're not in the darkness. We're not in the darkness. He's called us out of the darkness into the light. And you, if you're a believer, you, you're one of his. God has you. And look what he calls his people. A holy nation. A holy nation. And think for a moment, of all the adjectives that Peter could use, what's the one he uses here? He's quoting the Old Testament. <clears throat> what's the one that the Old Testament writer uses? Holy. Holy. Think about that for a moment. When you think about how does Paul characterize believers in the New Testament? How are they characterized? And he gets it from the Old Testament. Saints, right? 
That's what we usually see, saints. Look, we're just going to look at a couple passages. I just want you to see this so it sticks out a little bit. 2 Corinthians 1, very first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now that word saints, you could actually translate it if you wanted it to, holy ones, same word. You see holy, you see saints, it's, it's, it's synonymous. It's just, which way did the translators want to go? Did they want to say holy ones or saints? And each version kind of has a particular leaning, that's fine. So he calls them saints or holy ones. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Very first verse again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the what? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay? Same thing. To the holy ones. To the holy ones. I mean, that, he actually uses the, the adjective, and then <clears throat> there's a grammar term for it, but he uses the adjective, and we just turn it into a noun. Substantive adjective. So, to the holy ones. Look at Philippians. Oh, very first verse again. Look at that. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And one more, since it's right next to it, Colossians chapter 1. This time Paul waited until the second verse. (laughs) Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, to the saints, to the holy ones. Friends, the more you're purified, the more you're making upright moral decisions, the more you are becoming like Christ. And the more you are prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared to stand before God. Prepared to enter his presence. And many people at this point think to themselves, well, I'm so glad I don't do this thing or that thing. That's not the focus of holiness. It's not on what you don't do, but it is on what you do do. We're characterized by what we do do. That's primarily by what we do do. On who you are, on how you handle yourself, on how you interact with others, on how you live out the positive commands of Scripture. Yes, we're characterized by what we don't do, but... We're characterized by what we do do. Primarily, think about the command to love. They'll know they're Christians by our what? Love. Love. Not by the things you don't do, but by our love. That's the key for a disciple, by our love. So when we're talking about holiness and growing, I want us to be clear about something. One, we want to be ever-growing in our holiness. And I think, and there's a temptation for mature believers, that they think, uh, well, I've gone as far as I'm going to go. You know, I mean, you think about your trajectory as a believer, you first get saved. I mean, you know, sometimes it's just like you're, you're like in a rocket. You're just like taking off, right? You know, and then over time, it starts to, starts to plateau a little bit. And there's a couple dips probably, but, um, the trajectory, and then I think sometimes we just, as mature believers, a person can get kind of flatlined. That's not good. 
Because you, you, you can always grow in your holiness, right? Right? I mean, you can always grow in your holiness. Now, when I was at college, they had a place called Speaker's Circle where you could go and, and say whatever you wanted, and, and people did. Now at college, they just, everywhere is a Speaker's Circle. They just say whatever they want. But a, but a gentleman came, and he was claiming that he hadn't sinned in 23 years. I was like, you just did, brother. <laughs> you lied. <clears throat> um, his holiness was off a little bit, okay, let me just say that. Um, he carried this big old six-foot cross. If you tried to talk to him, he just put the cross in front of you, okay? It was very awkward trying to have a conversation with the man. I don't know about you, but, but I've got a ways to go in my holiness. We've got a ways to go. Even if you think you're 80% there, or 90% there, or 95% there, we've got to think about how Scripture... One, I, I, want to, I want us to think about this, two things. One, how Paul talks about others and how Paul talks about himself. Think about the contrast there. Because when he's talking about others, I mean, every single book we just looked at, and there's a couple others, what is he, what is he doing? Is he, I mean, he's kind of coming out and he's encouraging them and giving them a proper perspective as he's writing them a letter. Think about that. I mean, it's basically, in, in our modern-day lingo, like, dear Colossians, right? And then, but what is he calling them? Saints. He's calling them holy ones. That, I mean, that, that's what's at the forefront. And we sometimes need to remind ourselves, like, that's how God sees us. We're going to get into that in a little bit. So when he's seeing others, he's seeing them as holy ones. Friends, we've got to do the same with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and we fail at that. A lot of times we revert into a criticalness. That, that's the opposite of love. So we need to see them really as the pattern that we see in Scripture of seeing them, seeing you, seeing us as holy ones. But then I do appreciate that Paul is very realistic when he talks about himself, right? He admits his faults. He talks about, I'm, I'm the least of the apostle. I mean, he gives, and he's not using hyperbole. I mean, that's his clear, honest assessment of himself. And, and you get the picture that he, he, he doesn't think he's arrived. He knows he's got a long, this is the apostle Paul. Great man of faith. He, he's got a ways to go. He realizes that's what you see. So we need to be the same in how we view people and, and then also in our assessment of ourselves. I hope you don't think you've arrived. That's a dangerous place to be. You definitely haven't arrived. It's a dangerous place to be if you think you have arrived. And friends, when it comes to holiness, you know, we want holiness without sacrifice. We want holiness without effort. We want holiness without trials. We want holiness, but only if it comes easily. What, here's what Jesus said. Look at Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. I mean, have you ever denied yourself? You're being a disciple. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. Ever picked up that cross? It's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. You're being a disciple. Three things to note when we look at this passage back in 1 Thessalonians. First, he's talking about establishing our hearts. Establishing it what? 
in holiness. He doesn't just establish our hearts in a messy, sinful state that they're in. No, look what he does. He makes our hearts blameless in holiness. Can you do that? No. Can I do that? No. I mean, you know, you, you like take your heart and you look at it and you examine it and you're like, whoa. Like, that's pretty rough looking. No, but Christ redeems all of us. He cleanses all of us. And notice that it is God who does the work. So that, what's the next word? He may establish you. Not you may establish yourself. He establishes you. And this verb, establish, suggests that Thessalonians will feel secure on the day of judgment if the first two prayers that Paul prayed are carried out and completed. If they're really loving and following the Lord as he directs. So first you see this establishing your hearts, but the blameless and holiness. This blameless, back then you'd see it as a term, you'd see it mentioned like at funerals, this person was blameless, right? You know, you always got to talk good about people at funerals, right? It's kind of awkward as a pastor sometimes trying to do funerals for people that might not be blameless, right? But back then it was even a term, blameless, used for funerals. But here it was also used in judicial context. Judicial context. Innocent or guilty, right? Well, the blameless would be the innocent. Which, which gives us, if, we're, if we got our, our thinking caps on, he's linking it with our justification. Blameless goes with justification. Why? Again, this is something that God does, a declarative act, in the courtroom, so to speak, of God, the judge, the judge who always does right, who never does wrong, who will always do the just and righteous thing every single time. Every single time. And he's making a declarative act about you. And it's, you are blameless. We would think you're innocent. But, but we're so used to the word that innocent just means that oh, they didn't do it. But God's saying you're blameless. Like you never committed it. That's how he sees you. It's that declarative act. So it's blameless in holiness. Friends, we want to be found not guilty on Judgment Day. That comes through Christ and Christ alone. Now, holiness, he mentions other times in these two letters. We'll probably look at them at some other point. But I want you to understand something. Holiness is the condition of sanctification. It's not the process of sanctification. It's the condition God's sanctified you. You are holy. He's sanctified you. He's set you apart. He's made you holy. It's interesting, and we won't look at it this time. We'll look at it probably in a couple weeks. But there's actually two aspects of sanctification. Maybe you didn't know that. A lot of times you just think of the aspect of us becoming more like Christ. That's the aspect most people think of. But there's actually another aspect of, of sanctification as well. And he's hinting at it a little bit here. We'll talk about it in a few weeks. Okay, so you are holy. That states the condition that you're in. And here's the thing, friends. I want you to think about holiness for a moment. And then I want you to think about God. Because when you think of God, that should be one of the primary characteristics that you think of when you think about God. 
You think of all the descriptions in the Old Testament and all the descriptions of the New Testament. A lot of times our our modern ears and our, our modern thinking is, oh, it's love, it's love, it's love. And that's there, that's good. But there's one even bigger than that, and it's holy. Think of what God commands us to do. Be, be love like I'm love. No, be holy. Be holy. God commands that to which he is. Be holy because I am holy. So it's emphasized, this, this holiness concept we see emphasized and described as a character of God, Old Testament, New Testament. He wants us to be like him, right? And that makes sense. Why? We're made in his image. He makes us in his image. He wants us to be like him. Look at Ephesians. Let's just look at, at, at two verses briefly. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That he chooses us. What's part of that choosing? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Colossians, look at Colossians. It says something similar. Verse 21, Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what God is doing through Christ. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach. And that's what you are. That's how God sees you. Holy, blameless, above reproach. Here's the thing. Where does holiness come from? It comes from God himself. God himself. You can't conjure up holiness with inside you on your own. That doesn't work like that. God not just justifies you, but he actually sanctifies you. And there's, that's the two aspects that we'll look at. But one of those aspects is it's God and God alone who does the sanctification. Then there's the other aspect where we're cooperating with him. But, but only God himself, who is holy, can give us his holiness. Third, we see the phrase, before our God and Father... So where is this occurring? Before our God and Father, 1 Thessalonians 3. It's, it's happening in His presence. In His presence. You know, we're not, sometimes we act like we're, we're tarred and feathered and we're walking around with sin and shame dripping from us. Friends, you know, Paul gives us the image of saints and calls us that time and time again because the Holy Spirit's speaking through him is that's how God sees us. That's how God sees us, first and foremost. Every dad, every dad knows his kids' failures and shortcomings. But when, but when he sees his kids, he doesn't see those things first and foremost. What does he see? He sees the children that God blessed him with, that he loves with everything, that in a moment's notice, he would lay down his life for his kids. That's what he sees. 
And God is conforming us to his very own nature. And the nature of God is one of holiness. To walk blameless in holiness is to have a condition in which you are not under condemnation. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. Friends, God is God. And that puts him in a category all by himself. There's, there's no one else in his category. There's, there's nothing else in his category. And God has a name. Do you know what it is? You're like, is that a trick question? <laughs> it's Yahweh. That's the Hebrew. Jehovah sometimes, depending on how you want to argue the letters in the Hebrew, m- most of the consensus is Yahweh. And we get Adonai <clears throat> from some, some words getting switched around a little bit. But Yahweh, that's how God revealed himself to Moses, and that's how he reveals himself to us. We, we sing, well, it's been a while, but we sing a song where we even talk about Yahweh. We talk about Adonai. That's his name. And, and the danger, we, we've got a danger, friends. All of us have a danger. And it's like the ice cream bar approach to Christianity. And so, you know, we, we, like, we, we see Christianity and, and there's like, we got our ice cream. And then we, we want to just add the things that we want to make Christianity be as sweet as possible to us. Um, the, the proper term might be <clears throat> moralistic therapeutic deism. It was coined about 15 years ago. And the, the moralistic, it's just, it's basically, and here's what, as I was reflecting on it, what happens is, is, is you have a church and, and, and the pastor is, can be a believer and, and the parents can be believers and then they're bringing their kids up in the faith, but they're giving them uh, uh, not, I'd say, at best, not 100% the truthfulness of the gospel. At worst, they're giving them a false gospel. Because what they're, what they're communicating and the way they communicate it, the way they share the gospel, the way they uh, sell the gospel, is it's about, it's about being good, it's about feeling good, and it's about having this abstract idea about God. Moralistic, you got to be good. Therapeutic, you got to feel good. Deism, you got to believe in, in God. And that's like, that's like Christianity in a nutshell, in a false way. And, and kids are being brought up in that. And, and the parents and the pastor and the leaders in the church, they can even be saved. I'm not saying they're not saved, but what they're passing on to their kids and to other people that are coming into the church is not the true gospel. So kids grow up and they just think, oh, I got to be good and I, and I want to feel good. And when I got to believe, got to believe something about someone creating me somewhere. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And so we come to that ice cream bar and, oh, we want a helping of the moralism. Oh, but not too much. You know, um, I, you know, I, I got a guilty conscience, but I don't, I don't want a big one. It's just a little one. You know, just enough so that if I, I think about doing something really bad, I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. But not so much that I'm convicted of my daily sins that make me feel bad or make me alter the way I live. And we want a helping of, of, of the therapy, like, oh, man, pile that on, right? I, I want to feel good, and I want to feel good. And I was just, you know, it's like the, you know, the, the whipped cream is... I'm just putting it all over the place. And I, and I mean, just everywhere, all right? 
We're just piling on the thing. We want to feel good. We want to feel good. You know, the gospel doesn't always make us feel good. It, it exposes who we are, right? So we got that therapy part, and then, oh, we, we want a helping of God, but not, not too much God. We, we, we just want the, the sort of kind of transcendent God. He's big, and he's powerful, and he's out there, but we don't want the imminent God who's right here, close to me, with me. We, we don't want that God. We just, just want a little God. So we, we settle for the deism. We settle for deism. He's out there somewhere doing something, and he made me, and, and that's good. Friends, that's false gospel. If, if that's kind of how you're living your Christianity, you don't really have true Christianity, I'd be concerned for the state of your soul. Uh, you're just, you're just <clears throat> going along as the deists of old went along. Like, what, 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 you know, you don't even need Jesus in that picture. Well, you're going to end up dying in your sins. You're going to end up on Judgment Day, and you're not going to be what Paul is describing here. You're going to be in trouble. You're not going to be holy and righteous and blameless. You're going to be found with sin. Why? Because you never really accepted Christ in your life. You never really truly believed in him. It was never really about him. It was really about you. Friends, Jesus, he wants you sold out for him. And think about it. Jesus was sold out for you. Literally. 30 pieces of silver. Don't take the easy way. You know, Judas, Judas took the easy way. The easy way is death. The easy way is condemnation. The easy way is not the Jesus way. Jesus said there's what? A broad path and a narrow path. Which one you got to be on? Narrow. And, and if you're a believer, you know that narrow path, you know, I mean, it's like sometimes you're like, you're like, you know, like walking along the edge, right? I mean, it's pretty narrow. If you're going to stick with Jesus, you're going to walk his way. You just can't go skipping, hopping along, doing your own thing. You've got to stick to the path of Jesus. It can be rocky. It can be hilly. It can be tough. But it's Jesus' way. That's the, that, that little tiny road is the one that leads to the mountain of salvation. That's the one you've got to be on. So Jesus wants you sold out for him. And friends, let me just say something. You know, Jesus was crucified, not because Satan has a claim on you. Satan doesn't have no claim on you. He doesn't have a claim on you. God has a claim on you. God does. Jesus was crucified, not to avert Satan's wrath on you, but to avert God's wrath on you. Okay? So, we, gotta, we, gotta, we sometimes give Satan just way too much credit. And we get the gospel even confused on some things like this. Is he was crucified to satisfy propitiation, that's the word, to satisfy the claims of God himself, to avert God's wrath from you. And Jesus took the wrath. That's really what he took, friends. He took the sin, but what does that mean? What does he mean he took your sin? What does that mean? And what does it mean he paid the price? Paid what price? The price of you receiving God's wrath poured out on each one of you. Ephesians talks about it. You were, you were children, you were, were, were children of wrath. Every unbeliever, a child of wrath. And God makes one of his children. That, that's an amazing thing. 
So Jesus came to save you from God's wrath. That's what he came. He came to redeem you for the Father. And friends, we, we want justification. We want sanctification, but we don't want those things to change us at all. Again, we're back to a false gospel, if that's the case. We're back to easy believism. We're back to cheap grace. If God truly transforms you, it will be evident inside and out. Your mind will know it, your heart will know it, and everyone will know it. So let's not, let's not water down the gospel. If we want sanctification, that means we want transformation. If we want justification, we want regeneration. And if we're not there or we haven't been, we need to repent. We need to turn away from that false gospel. We need to turn to Christ and repent. What some of us call Christianity, let's just get a picture of what Christianity looks like in Hebrews. Let's get a picture of what it looks like living for Jesus, Hebrews 11. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, that's all the things God was doing, right? It goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know what one of my prayers is? That, that should the time come here in America, that me and my church and my brothers and sisters in Christ and the church in general could meet this if called to. Is sometimes we say, well, man, back then, friends, there's no back then. This is happening today. It's just not in America. This stuff is going on. There's persecution. There's persecution. Our brothers and sisters... Who's, 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 who's the very blood of Jesus was spilled for their souls. These things are happening. And I mean, that, that's when it's really put to the test, friends. You get a couple comments on Facebook, and you're like, oh. <clears throat> I mean, seriously. And we need to prepare ourselves for a time like this, should it come. And I believe it is coming. And we need to be prepared. And we need to, you know, the, the worst time to, to think about what you're going to do in a, in a tough situation is once you finally get in that tough situation, right? You kind of lose your head. You ever been in those situations? You kind of like freak out, right? Well, well, purpose now. Will you stand on the day of persecution? Is this probably not just going to come like a tidal wave? At least here. It's just like a, a slow, simmering pot. Frog in the kettle. A slow simmering pot. And before you know it, that tidal wave is upon you. You didn't even realize it. 
and, and you're knocked over. But let's stand. The saints of old set a good example. Our brothers and sisters, China, Iran, North Korea, they're being faithful. They're standing firm. So let's make sure we stand firm and are ready to continue to stand firm as God brings afflictions. God brings afflictions and trials and tribulations. Let me say one last thing. This is very much needed for some of you. Some of you are in chains of bondage. And friends, the chains of bondage are meant for the enemies of God. They're meant for the fallen angels that God has kept in reserve for the day of judgment, not for his children. Not for his children. Paul, when you, think, when you look at Paul, I was looking and I did a little, a little search on chains. Anytime chains are mentioned, anytime chains are mentioned, it's either talking about the fallen angels or it, Paul writing from prison, talking about literally the chains that he's in. And he's got... He's chained to a, a guard on one side, chained to a guard on another. He's trying to, you know, he's writing a letter to one of the churches. That, that's the only two times. It does, it's not ever talking about believers. But we, sometimes we just put ourselves in chains. Now, the chains have been broken. The chains have been broken. You've got to remind yourself the chains of bondage have been broken. You've been set free. Live in that freedom. So, <clears throat> to wrap up, this is finally the second coming of Christ. Paul, Paul mentions it in 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, Jesus is coming back. It's, it's not an if, but a when. It's a, it's a win. And, and I hope our prayer is like Paul's prayer. You know, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The more I grow in my faith, the more ready I am for him to come back. I'm looking forward to that day. It will be here. Some of you have more years on me and, and life goes by pretty quick, you'd probably admit. Well, that day of Jesus coming back will be here before we know it. And it's going to be a glorious day for his saints. There's nothing for us to fear. We've got the blood of Christ. And Jesus is coming back. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna complete, so to speak, the redemption. We will be, we will see, there ain't going to be no glass anymore. We'll see face to face. It's going to be an amazing day. I'm looking forward to it. What should this give us, friends? Hope. Not, not a temporal hope, but an everlasting hope. We have a hope. We have a hope that cannot be taken away. All sorts of tragedies can happen in our lives, and, and for some of you, they have. Heartache, affliction, it doesn't take that hope away doesn't mean there's not tears at times, but you still have the hope. The hope of Christ's redeeming you by God's own hand. He came to give you life, and part of that life was to give you hope. I want, I want us to just think, as we're closing, and as Paul was writing this, and actually, he was, as we looked at earlier, he's probably verbally speaking it to someone who was writing it down for him. <clears throat> it probably had some intonation in his voice as well. And I just want to encourage us as, 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 as we're praying, it's just like when we interact with anybody. 
We can say the same thing, and it can come across two or even three different ways, right? And, and when, when we're, it's the same thing when we're talking with the Lord. Let's make sure that the words that we, we, the words we speak are said in ways that truly reflect our hearts for the Lord. I've been guilty of it myself, just kind of going through a rope prayer or something. And we're speaking to the God of all the universe who created you, who redeemed you, who sent his son for you. And, and when we're coming before him, we should come with the spirit of humility. And, you know, when we say, it's kind of like when, you know, parents, you tell your, your one kid, oh, you know, say you're sorry to, you know, the other kid. And I'm sorry. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, you can say that a couple of different ways. And one, as parents, we can tell they mean it. There's the other way, they don't really mean it. That's how we need to be with our prayers. Whether they're verbally spoken or internally said, let's be real with them. Let's be real. I mean, I've heard people crying out to God to free them from a besetting sin or help with their marriage, for God to forgive them from some heinous sin that they've done. It's very heartfelt. It's very real. And God wants us real with him when we're in his presence, when we're standing before him. Let's be real with him. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, we do pray these three prayers that you would direct our ways, you would increase and abound our love, and you would have us to be holy and blameless before you. Lord, you, you've started a work in the believers here. And just like Paul said in Philippians, uh, bring it to completion in us, Lord. Bring it day by day in, to completion in us. Continue to mold us, continue to shape us, continue to transform us by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, by your outstretched hand to the image of your Son. And Lord, let us, let us be a people with our hearts set on you. Let us be a people that aren't just holy in name, but holy in deed. Not just holy in word, but holy in action. And, and Spirit, we acknowledge we need you for this. We need you for, for the fruit which comes from you, the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, give us more and more of that fruit. Let us tend to the vineyards and to the fields, Lord, so that it's fruitful. Continue in us your work for your glory, Lord. You've been so gracious to us, so merciful, so amazing, so awesome. We truly love you, Lord. We truly love you.